Good morning, everyone. So we are in the book of Ezra we have been studying, and we are going to pick up right where we left off, Ezra chapter 4. Let's begin. When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the families and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of King Ashar Hadan of Assyria, who brought us here. Wow, anybody else lost already? Like, we're one verse in. Anybody else a little confused about who all the names are and what's going on? Okay, you guys got it? Perfect. I'll sit back down. Now, who, who could use a little update or some sort of orientation? I thought so. So you're going to like this. We're going to do the last half of the Old Testament in three minutes. All right, this will be good. So uh, most famous figure in the Bible that you're all going to know right away is Jesus. And uh, so we're going to do this with movie posters today. And so I have the Son of God. Thank you, History Channel, for making us pay movie prices for something you're going to show us for free on, uh, on your channel. But okay, so Son of God, there's Jesus. We are talking about before Jesus. Okay, now let's get a frame of reference in the Old Testament that everyone probably knows. Who knows the story of David and Goliath? David and, okay, good. We're going to do that. That's 950 B.C. Now, you got your choice. You can have uh, uh, Richard Gere or uh, Gregory Peck. So which David do you want? You know what? You guys picked Gregory Peck first service is kind of trashy and picked Richard Gere. All right, so this is much classier. Thank you. Yes, Gregory Peck. All right, so Gregory Peck, uh, David, has a son named Solomon, and Solomon builds the temple of the Lord. Now, after Solomon, there's a series of wicked kings who turn away from God and do all sorts of stuff. In fact, they're so violent, they split Israel in two. Northern half keeps the franchise name Israel. Southern half picks a new name, Judah. Now, uh, God tells them if they don't straighten up their act, he's going to send judgment upon them. They don't, so he does. And in 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire comes and wipes out the northern half, Israel, hauls them off into slavery. Uh, they still don't straighten up their act. So in 586 BC, the new world rulers, the Babylonian Empire, comes and wipes out Judah. That's when they destroy Jerusalem. That's when they tear the temple down. That's when they haul all the people and scatter them over the known world as prisoners. And that's called the exile. Now, in 538 BC, the Babylonians are overthrown by the Persians. So now we have our third world. This is Age of Empire stuff for those of you who play video games. All right, so the Persians come in. King Cyrus of Persia decides he will let the people of Israel go back home. He even gives them government money to rebuild the temple. That's 538 BC. But the people of Israel don't go home all at once. They go home in three waves scattered over a century. So the first wave goes back immediately, and they are eventually led by a governor named Zerubbabel. So write that in your choice of boy names. Um, Zerubbabel. Then... 480 BC, we get 300 Spartans or one night with the king. Happened about the same time under King Xerxes. So do you want uh, Peter O'Toole or Gerard Butler? Gerard. Now your true color show. All right. <laughs> so, okay. So under Xerxes, the 300 Spartans has really nothing to do with the Bible, just to Fun reference there. Okay. Then in 458 BC, now the second wave of Israelites come back under Ezra. Now Artaxerxes, the son of 
cross-dressing Xerxes, is uh, king, only in the movie. That really upset the Iranians when they dressed him that way in the movie. All right, and then uh, 13 years later, uh, the last wave under Nehemiah returns. All right, so now we kind of have, oh, and then let's not forget that Alexander the Great comes and conquers them all in 331, and our Old Testament doesn't go that far unless you have a Catholic Bible. All right, so this is the way it went. You are here. Zerubbabel has returned. King Cyrus said you could go back and rebuild the temple, and what they find when they get back to Jerusalem is while they were being dumped up in Babylon, some other people had been dumped in Jerusalem. So they go home and find these other exiles from their homeland living in their now new homeland. And they said, hey, we've been worshiping your God just like you ever since you've been gone. So uh, why don't you let us help you rebuild this temple? Verse 3. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of the family of Israel said to them, you shall have no part with us in building a house to our God. We alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as the king of Persia, Cyrus the king of Persia, has commanded us. Now I cringed when I first read that because I thought, if you're broke and until recently homeless and someone offers to help you rebuild your temple, shouldn't you let them? Is now really the time to say, oh no, no, we're Jews and you're not, so no, you can't help. But Zerubbabel and Yeshua must have known something about these people that we can't see from our side of the text. Because watch what happens in verse 5. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. And they bribed officials to frustrate their plan throughout the reign of King Cyrus of Persia until the reign of King Darius. So they showed up saying, hey, we want to build this temple with you. We've been hanging out worshiping this God for you all the time you've been away. So let us get out some hammers and help. Zerubbabel says, no thanks, this is really our task. So they sabotage the whole project. They intimidate people trying to work. They bribe government officials to throw up every conceivable roadblock to halt the building of the temple. Which brings us to our first sermon point today. Sometimes the people of God have human opponents. And according to the text... Their opponent's plan works. They halt construction of that temple for 20 years. Last week, we celebrated the building of the foundation. That's all they were able to finish for 20 years. This chapter in Ezra is describing things happening to Zerubbabel, but it's being written by Ezra, Nehemiah, some combination of those guys up here. And the reason why they're writing about this up here is because up here, they're trying to do something new. They're trying to build a wall around Jerusalem and they're having problems getting that done because of human opponents. And Ezra is writing this passage of scripture to look back and say, look, we've had human opponents before. We have been through this before. And it's happening again to us now. And then he starts to remind them of their present history. Verse 7, it says, in the days of Artaxerxes, I have to take Alexander down there. He's blocking what we need to get done. Okay, in the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote a letter to King Artaxerxes of Persia. Now Ezra has a copy of this letter that was sent to Artaxerxes and he's copying it into our scriptures. So we're going to study it here. And the first thing that happens in that letter is the opponents of Israel suck up to the king of Persia. It says, To King Artaxerxes, your servants, the people of the province beyond the river, we send our greeting. And they complain then about what the people of God are doing. 
And now may it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city and they're finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. And then they create fear for the king's pocketbook. Verse 13. Now may it be known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be reduced. Oh, no. And then they add just a little truth that the king will be able to verify, especially if they tell him where to go look. Verse 15. So that a search may be made in the annals of your ancestors, you will discover in the annals that this is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from long ago. And on that account, this city was laid to waste. But right on the heels of that truth they've given him, now they create the slippery slope argument of fear. We make it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are finished, you will have no possessions in the province beyond the river. Basically, they're saying, if you let these Jews rebuild this city, you'll lose all the lands west of the Euphrates because of it. Well, that gets Artaxerxes' attention. So he searches the records. He does indeed find what they told him to go look for and find. That Jerusalem had once rebelled against Babylon. And so Babylon wiped the city off the face of the earth. And so Artaxerxes decides he agrees. Verse 21, he says, Therefore issue an order that these people be made to cease, and this city not be rebuilt, until I make a decree. And then he says the most telling comment of the whole chapter. Moreover, take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? When the enemies of Israel get this letter, they can hardly wait to go up there and put a stop to the construction of that city. Verse 23, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and the scribe Shimshai and their associates, they hurried to the Jews in Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. And Ezra says, look, we have enemies now stopping us. We have opponents who have stopped us before. This is part of the spiritual reality of being the people of God on earth. Sometimes you have human opponents. They have king, uh, schemes to stop you. And the fact of the matter is sometimes those schemes work for a time. And Ezra wants them to know it does not mean God is not with it and God is not with us and that he was not part of the idea of rebuilding his temple and his city. It just means sometimes we have human opponents and sometimes their plans succeed. First, they come pretending to love the same God you love, pretending to want to build the same temple you're building. But if you don't let them in on it, you don't offer them the chance to control it and to tell you how it's done, then they'll turn on you and shut the whole thing down. Veronica's voice is a ministry based here in Kansas City. I've messed up the tape on Jesus, so I'm sorry he's going to have to come down. Um, Veronica's voice is a ministry in Kansas City that our church has decided to partner with for the next three years. It's a ministry to help sexually exploited women and even some men leave the sex trade here in Kansas City, to leave lives, to leave lives of prostitution and uh, other forms of exploitation. In 2010, with the help of a donor, they were able to acquire this beautiful manor house 
on the edge of a pretty nice neighborhood in Kansas City. This house would house 16 girls. And in this house, they would receive a counseling for all the hurts that they had been through. Most people in prostitution, the average profile is a child who was abused. In this house, they would receive treatment for their addictions. Uh, in this house, they would receive training for things they never learned how to do, like how to go to a job interview and, and how to have a job other than prostitution. The average person enters prostitution at the age of 14. They've never done anything else. And so uh, this would be a place of healing. Then came the opponents to the people of God, the neighborhood association behind this house, which included some members of city council. They were both city council people and members of this neighborhood association. And they complain about what the people of God are trying to do on that corner of the street. And then they create fear for the king's pocketbook when they say, hey everyone, Magdalene Manor will lower our property values. When we try to sell our big houses, they won't be worth as much if that, if that is in the backyard. Then they give a little truth that can be verified. Some of these girls do have violent pimps who are searching for them and don't want to just let them go. Some of them relapse into their old ways. So that corner of the street is going to be a little more lively than it used to be. Uh, never mind that that corner of the street at the edge of the neighborhood was already pretty lively and it had several crimes committed on it that year already. Right on the heels of that little bit of truth, though, they create a slippery slope of fear and began to insinuate that these gals would then turn this into a brothel and there'd be Johns wandering in and out and they'd be out wandering the streets turning tricks in the neighborhood, uh, ignoring the fact that these were folks trying to turn away from that lifestyle and also ignoring the fact that there were already girls on the streets of that upscale neighborhood turning tricks. The neighborhood association prevailed and Veronica's voice was booted out of Magdalene Manor and had to sell it. This has happened to Veronica's voice not once but twice. Um, it happened again when a Kansas City uh, group was going to bring several organizations, including Veronica's voice, together under an umbrella to help sexually exploited people. And they were going to have a uh, facility on, um, in the old St. Paul's uh, Seminary, which the Methodist Church had recently uh, abandoned. And so... They were all geared up, and then another neighborhood association. And uh, their words and, and, and uh, tactics and motivations were captured by TV cameras. So I thought we'd just watch it together as it happened. Our top story at six, those near St. Paul School of Theology are not happy with a possible new neighbor. Yeah, the school wants to sell its property to a group that works with sexually exploited children and adults. Note 6, Garrett Hake joins us live now from the area. Garrett, some neighbors are saying, hey, not in my backyard. That's exactly right, Jadion. This Methodist Theological School is going to move across the border into Kansas at the end of this month. But tonight, word of who the new tenant might be has some neighbors sounding the alarm. Sherry Ashcroft has lived near the St. Paul's campus for 30 years. The first time she's ever thought about leaving, she said, was when she heard who might be moving in. My gut reaction was, I'd rather see St. Paul's boarded up with weeds up to my shoulders. Under contract to buy the sprawling campus, the KC Coalition Against Sexual Exploitation, an umbrella group of organizations that banded together to spend $2 million on the campus. They plan to turn it into a safe place with dorms, counseling, and daycare for women and young people trying to get out of the world of prostitution and sexual exploitation. Extremely dram dramatic, a lot of excitement, a lot of people were very upset. 
A Thursday night community meeting to sell residents on the project had the opposite effect for neighbor Tim Westcott, still buzzing about it today. Absolutely not. It will decrease the value of our property. There's a whole issue of security and all those issues that come with that. So I think that there's an apprehension uh, based on, on a lack of understanding of the, of the program. The project's Washington, D.C.-based leader, Steve Wagner, says that's just not the case. To the extent that property values are determined by having an outstandingly well-run facility at St. Paul's, I guarantee you this facility will not be a detriment to the property values. Wagner describes a community campus with 24-hour security for only those who've chosen to change their lives. No Johns or homeless allowed and no increase in crime. It's very laudable. It Promises unlikely to sway neighbors like Westcott. I think that's fine, but I just don't want it in my backyard. Tomorrow morning, a city planning committee will begin the process of rezoning this land so that KC Case can open up their campus here. The KC Case folks say they hope to be up and running here by next summer. The residents we spoke to today said they'll be at that meeting tomorrow, hoping to slow things down by any means necessary. Reporting live in Northeast Kansas City, Garrett Hake, 41 Action News. The Neighborhood Association prevailed. And all those organizations were, were booted off that campus as well. This has become the battle cry of the suburbs. Somebody ought to help those people. Just do it somewhere else. And then the most telling moment when a few of the possessions of Veronica's voice and other ministries had already been moved to that campus, they had to be hauled out as they were taking things. People from that neighborhood stood on the sidewalk as they were leaving and loading their things and applauded and said, see you later and don't come back and other things like that to members of our congregation. <laughs> The people of God sometimes have human opponents. When you try to do a good and a Christian thing in your workplace, someone will probably try to stop you. When you try to treat someone in your school, if you're a student, with respect and compassion and decency instead of bullying, someone will probably start a rumor about you. One of our high school students from this congregation submitted a budget to her budgeting and life skills class. And uh, her second highest item in the budget was charitable giving. The teacher informed her that that was not realistic, marked her down and gave her a bad grade for the class. Only when her parent from this congregation called and said, that budget she turned in only reflects the values that are taught and practiced in our home, was the grade changed. When you try to change the community in a positive way, in Jesus' name, especially if there's any chance it might hit someone in the pocketbook, Someone will try to stop you. And for a time, they may succeed. Ezra tells us these setbacks don't mean that it wasn't God's will and that God's hand is not in it. Ezra is trying to wake us up to the spiritual reality that sometimes we have human opponents and sometimes their plans succeed for a time. That is sermon point one, which leads me directly to sermon point two. And sermon point two is very important to me these days. And sermon point two is this. Politicians are not the friends of the people of God. In fact, the title of the sermon today is, With Friends Like These, Who Needs Enemies? It's no secret that at Lakeland Community Church, sometimes we have a hard time holding on to some people because we will not tow a political line in this sanctuary. 
We will not make this a Democrat church and let Democratic candidates have their election night parties here and tell wonderful stories in our sermons about the great things that Christian Democrats are doing in our nation. And we refuse to make this a Republican church where Republican candidates are invited to speak from our pulpit on Sundays, ironically only during election year, are they interested, and where flyers for Republican causes are available in the lobby for you to pick up and get excited about. And this upsets people who are very excited about their political party. But as I read stories like this in Scripture, all I see is that human leaders like to use the power of the people of God, but they are not for the people of God. They are for themselves. Politicians are not the friends of the people of God. Nebuchadnezzar was a king of the known world. He scattered the people of Israel all over the known empire in order to weaken them and to strengthen his own control over the world. Cyrus of King Persia, he decides he'll let the people of Israel go back. He'll even give them government money to rebuild their temple. But what Cyrus really needed was a buffer nation between himself and Egypt because it was just a wasteland out there. He needed a strong and patriotic nation so that if Egypt ever attacked Persia, they'd have to go through Israel first and that would slow him down. I do believe God used Cyrus' decree, but Cyrus didn't make it out of obedience to God. He was trying to protect his own homeland. It was no act of kindness. And Artaxerxes, we now find, is rescinding that order because he's gotten a whiff that it might decrease tax revenue. Politicians are not the friends of the people of God. I was at a banquet once sitting with a man who had run for mayor of a community here in our county as a Christian, and, and he had won. Because he was a Christian mayor and I was a pa pastor, he, he grossly misunderstood uh, what I'm all about and so shared this story with me in a very unguarded way. He said the hardest part about being mayor was they would have these secret meetings with the city council to create laws to drive low-income people out of their community and into other communities in the county. The hardest part about being mayor was reminding the councilman not to say that that was the motivation for the laws out loud once they had the public meeting. He said every once in a while they'd have a public meeting and someone would say, why are you wanting to pass this weird law? And they'd say, it'll drive all those low-income people out. And he'd have to tell them, no, no, that's not why, and then take them aside and like, remember, you're not supposed to say that. Now, I'm sure in that town, there were low-income people who had voted for him. Single moms, first-year teachers, people fleeing the urban core, trying to live in a place that's safe and has good schools for their kids. And I bet they thought, if I vote for a Christian man, there'll be someone who will run this city the way Jesus would run it, and we'll finally get a break here. But little did they know that that Christian man in secret meetings was stabbing them in the back week after week because politicians are not the friends of the people of God. A relative of mine, this is a, a relative of mine, went to a meeting sponsored by the U.S. House of Representatives. It was for business people uh, in this uh, uh, next county over who were interested in running for public office. And they got to have breakout sessions where just two or three of them would have lunch with a congressman. Here's what a congressman said to my relative, and I'm only telling it to you as it was told to me. He said, don't come to Capitol Hill to change the nation. Every possible idea for how to run this country has already been trotted out on that floor and none of them will ever be done because they're too complicated. So he said, come to Capitol Hill for yourself. Come and get something for yourself while you can and then go home. And the revolving door that now exists between our House of Representatives and lobbyist groups 
or our House of Representatives and, and corporate uh, America shows that this piece of advice was not isolated, it is true and regularly followed. Politicians are not the friends of the people of God. They have only one question, and it's the only question we find in our chapter today that Artaxerxes asked. Why should any harm come to the king? Politicians pretend to be religious when it suits them. Remember how Ezra starts? King Cyrus of Persia says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Makes no mention of needing that buffer state between himself and Egypt. And surely you haven't forgotten when the people today in our chapter came to Zerubbabel and said, we worship your God as you do. We've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of King Ashar Hadon. But when they're not let in on the project, bribe government officials to shut the temple building down. We have to remember as educated people that religious wars are never fought about religion. Religion is what is given to the poor people who will fight the war for you because you're not going to give them the land and power you acquire. So you tell them they'll get to go to heaven or live forever or that sort of thing. And then the poor people will fight it for you. But wars are always fought for land and power. Here in our letter today, seven times in that letter to Artaxerxes, they mentioned the land beyond the river. The land beyond the river. Let's not forget the land beyond the river. Who will control the land beyond the river? Now, if there's a politician uh, in, the, in the sanctuary this morning, or one of you is thinking about running for public office, and you're feeling beat up at the moment, and, and saying, I, I'm a Christian politician, and I, and I want to be different. I want to be for the people of God. Then I would only say this to you. If you're a Christian politician, then do something Jesus would do while you're in office. And quit telling us how Christian you are all the time. If we're unable to tell that you're a Christian already by how you live, how you spend your money, how you conduct yourself in your free time, how you show up for the job you're elected to do, and how you vote, we don't need any more talk. We just need more work from you on those causes. Show me your faith by your good deeds, it says in the book of James. And so until we have politicians who will show us their faith by their good deeds instead of just showing up to rallies every four years to tell us how Christian they are, I will continue to preach that politicians are not the friends of the people of God. They are happy to use your devotion to God to further their cause, but ultimately you have to remember they fear your devotion to God because they know it's an allegiance you have to God that's higher than the allegiance you have to them. And at any moment... If they conflict with the things of God, they know it can make you turn on them. And that's why they constantly try to convince you that voting for them is the same as voting for a servant of God. There was a time when Americans knew this instinctually. That's why our government is divided into three branches, because you can't trust a human president, and you can't trust a human congressman, and you can't trust a human judge. So you create a suspicious system that gives them each the power to limit and watch over the activities of the other, and they frustrate each other's evil, and they slow down each other's schemes. Dictatorships move a lot faster. You will never get an argument from me on that. Dictatorships get things accomplished much faster than our form of government. But let me ask you, in the long run, what is a dictatorship ever done for people anywhere in the world in the long run? 
Why do you have elders who rule your church alongside pastors? Why do you have rules that there has to be one non-ordained pastor for every ordained pastor? In fact, today we have an elders meeting and there's so many of the non-ordained guys out that we're not gonna be able to vote on anything that makes a permanent decision because it's just us ordained folk here and our bylaws don't give us enough power to do anything for the church without the non-ordained alongside us in equal number. Why do we do that? Because one guy running anything, even a little church, is a dangerous thing. And politicians are not the friends of the people of God. Now, I've been preaching this message in different words uh, my entire preaching life. And I'm beginning to get the feeling that not very many people believe me. You still get on Facebook and get in political arguments with each other and see things on TV or in an email and immediately post them, inflammatory things, fights with your own Christian brothers and sisters as if these political parties and these political platforms are the hope of the world rather than you and your unity and your service to Jesus Christ and love and his power by the Holy Spirit. You still change churches and stop fellowshipping with the church because they aren't political enough on your side of the aisle. I feel like I'm not getting through. On, on this point, I do feel as a preacher, I, I am failing. How did this get into me? I was 20 years old in 1993, and I was just coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And I was spending the summers then in Dallas, Texas, and I was driving back from the gym, and I was listening to a local Dallas preacher on the radio. And he said one of those nights some words that forever have changed the way I look at human leaders and the Word of God. He was a master preacher. He was an African-American preacher. Tony Evans uh, still preaches today. And through the wonder of the Internet, I, I started looking, and I found that 20-year-old sermon. And so I'm going to yield the remainder of my time to just five minutes from these words that have taught me in hopes that they might be able to convince you where I have failed. So from 1993, Tony Evans' sermon titled, Is God a Democrat or a Republican? That's pretty in your face. Let's hear what he has to say. We are engaged in a battle today and people are split and they feel very, very committed to their particular political orientation. But I want to answer the question today, is God a Democrat or a Republican? Now we've already said that God cannot be removed from politics because the reason I want to know that is because I want to vote with him. I kind of want to know where God stands, so I know where I'm supposed to stand as a child of God. And I would think that would be any Christian's concern. That's why I want to call your attention to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5. Joshua has crossed the promised land. He is the leader of the nation of Israel. They have now crossed into the promised land and are about to move forward. As they make their way forward, they are moving toward Jericho. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. 
And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Are you voting for us? Are you on our side? Or are you voting for them? Are you on Jericho's side? I need to know which way you going. Who you voting for? Whose side are you on? The man answers and he says in verse 14, No. Now, I don't see how that answers the question. <laughs> Joshua said, Are you on their side? Or are you on our side? I would have thought the answer would have been, I'm on your side or I'm on their side because that was the question. But all the captain says is, no. Rather, I indeed come as captain of the host of the Lord. The answer came back to Joshua, I'm not on your side, nor am I on their side. I got a whole nother program that is independent of both of your sides. I've got a whole nother program and I'm not going to let you box me in to your program of how you think I ought to vote. How you think I ought to be. I'm not going to let you, the captain says, pull me down to your level. Why? Because I'm captain of somebody else's army. I am captain of the Lord's army of hosts. He's got this whole other thing that's not tied down to your side or their side. I would like to suggest to you today that our God is not the God of Democrats, nor is he the God of Republicans. He says, I am captain of the Lord's army. I did not come to take sides. I come to take over. There's this whole other thing I'm doing. So you say, are you saying it's wrong for me to be a Democrat? Are you saying it's wrong for me to be a Republican? No, I'm saying if you're a Democrat, you got to be a Democrat light. Like crystal light, you know, like Coke light, you know. Or if you're a Republican, you got to be a Republican light. In other words, no group can have your total loyalty because you belong to another order. And see, unless you see that, you will never be fully Christian and your Christianity will always be... See, since there is no kingdom party, I'm working on it, but since right now there is no kingdom party, no party that takes the position that the only way we approach anything is from the divine perspective, since that party does not yet exist, and we have to vote in the parties that are available to us based on the candidates that are in place. Your position is, I'm going to may vote Democratic, kind of. I may vote Republican, kind of. But as soon as you disagree with God, I'm going to disagree with you, even though I voted in your direction, because my commitment is not fully to you. And the problem is we've allowed the politics of men to call for a kind of kingdom commitment that only God has the right to call for. And that is why there is a division in the kingdom of God. Is God a Democrat or Republican? God is the consummate independent. And so should you be.
Yes, there is a moral agenda, but there's also a justice agenda. And there can be no discrimination and there can be no partiality. But yes, we must value life and value God's moral stance. And where there are both, Christians must stand in the divine without giving full allegiance to either. The line that stuck with me is, I'm not on your side or their side, I'm here to take over. I hope that's what the Church of Jesus Christ is in the world, and I want to be part of that. There's a third sermon point today. It's the reason Ezra wrote the book, and it is to say not to be discouraged by the setback that is caused by human opponents. But to fully grasp that story, you'll have to come back next week to hear how our study of Ezra concludes. I've never done it to be continued. That's kind of fun. So next week is for everyone who has experienced opposition and setbacks in the Christian life and has come, so come to hear the most important part of Ezra's message. Let us stand together and let us recite the supreme Pledge of Allegiance. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, one holy church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Go forth in peace and the power of God.